Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2019 event. Eight writers, eight seven-minute true stories, no scripts, no props. Toiling for your entertainment and edification and addressing the loose theme of At the Crossroads in our festival gala night True Stories Told Live are eight writers who include the Irishman John Boyne, New Zealanders Roger Hall, Chessie Henry and Mika, South African writer Sasonki Umsamang, American Mary Norris, Camilla Shamsi from Pakistan and England and American songwriter Jeff Tweedy. This event is supported by Craig's Investment Partners. We hope you enjoy it. Love Hotel, full of fallen angels, invisible to the kids in a cafe listening to pop punk glam boy. Lost, disillusioned angels looking for love float past, chasing something not there. Birth, live, die. The only common letter is the I. You know, you can clap at the beginning of any of us. You can clap in the middle, you can clap at the end, okay? It's up to you, but you will clap. (laughs) I think they put me first, because as you know, I'm so shy. And I thought tonight, at the crossroads, it could be like crossword, it could be anything at all, couldn't it really? But I thought that I would discuss something else on the crossroads of life. There, um, this morning, I was in hospital with my young LGBT person who tried to take their life this morning. It's the 10th or 12th in the last year, and I've learned something. Young people are not dumb. There's this crossroads. Our generation and their generation are different, but the same. But guess what? Sometimes if you give a young person a book, a book, Sounds weird, just a book. In this case, he's gay, so it's RuPaul's Drag Race, you know, a book. And you know, they look at the book, and they look at it again, and again, and again, and they absorb. And when they're on their phones, they do this. And it kind of clicked. We've stopped having points where things finish. Do you remember you read a newspaper? Who does that now? Anyway, if you read a newspaper, and it would finish, remember? And you had to wait for the next day for the newspaper. Now you can do this. Can't you have news? Yes? We no longer see things and hear things that we want to see. And I wonder if that's the reason we've become so removed from each other as artists. I mean, if you think about, you know, here, Manawanu, we have a big heart. Hmm? New Zealand had a big heart. Here, Manaki, um, Manaki Roa, how we would welcome everyone. Yes, very New Zealand qualities, I think you agree. Quite a diverse audience, there's at least three brown people. <laughs> I love saying that. I really do, I love going to white events and saying that. Because you know, you shouldn't be guilty, because I tell all my white friends it's okay to be white, enjoy it, there's not many of you left. <laughs> it's true. You know. And the thing that I find with this subject of crossroads is what is it? Hmm? We have people now, so many languages in the city. I actually love it. I love going anywhere and hearing different languages, mainly because then they probably won't talk to me. 
also, if they do, it's with their eyes and their smiles. Do you know that one? If you don't, get out a bit more. But really, where are we now? We still have this most amazing place. We all know that. Things are changing. Our crossroads, our, literature, our literary world is changing. I mean, yes, I have a biography, as you all know, and I write scripts, etc. I never thought I was a writer until I joined the Writers Guild. And then I accepted everyone writes, everybody writes, but now you're a writer or a director or something. Now, a long time ago, you won't remember this, or some of you are, most of you over 40? <laughs> Stupid question, mother. Anyway, once upon a time, you were a singer, right? A politician, that's all you were. You, know, you couldn't do anything else, that was what, what you were, right? Today, you can be anything you want, and that's where we are at. All of us here, here, here tonight, wonderful bunch of misfits. I'm probably the most normal-looking one out of all of them. <laughs> okay, that's a lie, but you get my drift. They're out there. And the reason I wanted to talk about the other things, young people, etc., is we have influences in the room, all of you. So there's something I've learned recently. All of you have young people, grandchildren, yes? Nephews, nieces? You know when they do this thing and they moan about life? I've learned one thing. Shut up and listen. Just shut up. Let them go on and on about, oh, yeah. I mean, they don't speak English anymore. And the thing with what's great in this audience tonight, it's much better, I feel, that we all leave with something a bit deeper. Because tomorrow night at my show at 9 o'clock, I'll be very funny, okay? That's okay, you can do that one tomorrow night. But tonight, we're doing this one, and I just thought... Silence. That moment in silence. You know, sometimes we feel uncomfortable in silence. But if we can go into silence with young people, it is the most beautiful place you can go. In the morning, when the sun does shine in the evening when the sun no shine those of us here inga iwi e nei those resting inga iwi amua nei Inga iwi akonga, those to come. Te mea tua tahi ora tangata. Te mea tua rua aroha. Te mea tua toru mauri ora takitahi. At crossroads tonight, is no one anymore is the same as anyone else. I'm no longer the only misfit in Auckland. Kia ora koutou. Hello. I'm going to tell a story tonight that I've never told in public, and it's partly because it's precious to me, and it's partly because I know people would think I was crazy. So I'm telling it here in New Zealand because it's so far from home, and I feel safe here. And I like to think that what happens at the 
Auckland Writers' Festival stays at the Auckland Writers' Festival. So, on February 16th, 2018, I took a train from New York City to Poughkeepsie to Vassar College to hear a talk by Emily Wilson, whose translation of The Odyssey had just come out to great acclaim. I was working on a book about Greek myself and feeling very inadequate. Um, I had, I'd had a little Greek here and there, studied modern Greek, studied ancient Greek, but I had, I had to write about Homer and I had to write about the Greek alphabet and I had something like 3,000 years worth of scholarship and criticism to absorb. And how was I going to write anything original about Homer? And how was I going to write anything about the alphabet that wasn't a total slog? I did not know. So I was nervous. I was behind my deadline. I'd passed one deadline and was coming up against another. And I just wasn't sure I was, I didn't know what I was doing. So I took off to Poughkeepsie. I had a few things under my belt about Homer. I'd read something called The Life of Homer by someone known as the Pseudo-Herodotus. Um, Pseudo-Herodotus cooked up a story about Homer. He was born um, fatherless. His, his father, nobody knows, but his mother lived near a river in Smyrna and the young boy learned his trade on the streets. He was a rhapsode, that's from Raptis, tailor and ode, ode, a stitcher of songs. And he went across the Aegean, he traveled, and um, it was in Ithaca, of all places, that he contracted an eye disease and went blind. So I think you can if anything by someone named Pseudo-Herodotus, you can kind of figure as a fictional Homer, I think. There's others who believe there was no Homer, that that's the name for a school of rhapsodes whose version was the best, and that's the version that got transmitted to us and um, disseminated all around the Mediterranean. What else about Homer? I read Matthew Arnold's On Translating Homer, and if I hadn't known about that, somebody fortunately put me onto it, otherwise I would have seemed a total ignoramus. One of the things Matthew Arnold says is that Homer is swift, he moves right along. And another thing that he says is that Homer is dignified. And he also says that no one except the classicist is suitable to judge a translation of Homer. So that left me, <laughs> not an official classicist at all, feeling a little bit left out. Um, among the scholars themselves, though, it's, it's like a sport to dish other translations of Homer. They love to say, well, this guy's version is even longer than Homer's. That shows a less than rigorous approach. Somebody else criticized a translation that used exclamation points in Homer. This is Homer. He's very even, no line, no scene ever sticks out. My idea um, was that Homer is actually meant to be a little soporific. The songs were sung after banquets, everyone was drunk and had overeaten, and it would be bliss to fall asleep to somebody singing Homer to you, it seemed to me. So this talk by Emily Wilson, 
was mostly about the scene in the Odyssey where Telemachus strings up the, ser the servant girls who had been hanging out with the suitors. It's really very cruel. He hangs them just by, um, so their feet, their toes almost touch the ground and it's a lingering death and, and you think, oh, Telemachus, that it leaves a person cold. But uh, Emily Wilson's translation was um, remarkable for its feminine sensibility. Not so much feminism, but she didn't call those servant girls sluts like a lot of the male translators were tempted to do. Um, I, sh she did touch on her translation of Polytropos Odysseus, um, many, well, it's been translated so many ways. Her translation is a complicated man. Um, others translated as wily, adaptable, versatile. Uh, I like the man of many turnings. If you go into Homer at all, you find out that there's a, a, a scholar from the mid-century named Milman Perry who went to Yugoslavia where they still practice um, oral poetry and he discovered that those epithets like polytropos, odysseus, wine dark sea, rosy fingered dawn, that they are all there just as fillers for the rhyme and if you used one of those it would give you time to think of what to say next. Um, Anyway, Milman Perry, I read in one little tiny piece of the research, had died a sudden death by gunshot. And I had to, tr I had to do more research on that. Turns out he was visiting his mother-in-law in San Francisco, and he was changing clothes in one room before going to dinner, and his wife in the next room heard a gunshot. The, the um, great... Homer scholar of Harvard packed a gun, and while he was unpacking, his luggage went off and it killed him. So this put a little scare into me somehow. Anyway, um, after the lecture, I went and met Emily Wilson and had her sign my book. I went out to dinner with a friend, drank a little wine, caught the train home, caught on a different train home than I'd taken up there. I take the commuter train up there, but I got this beautiful train down the Hudson River Valley on the way back. And I got home and I sat at my desk and I wrote up what was happening that night. And I felt this presence over my shoulder. And it was somebody comfortable, somebody I was really comfortable with, maybe my sister, maybe an old friend. I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but I turned around and I saw like a shimmer. It might have been just that the lamp was on the fritz. But um, I turned back to my writing and I, and I kept writing and I kept trying to think, who is this? Who, who will it be? And I thought later that somebody mentioned a friend who had recently died and who, was, who had unerring editorial instincts. And this friend, she said, she had channeled and was able to finish a piece of writing. And I thought, that's who it was. It was Lindsley. Lindsley had had a wonderful, crazy life. The pseudo-Herodotus could have done a wonderful job with it. She'd been born fatherless. She was um, put up for adoption. She was adopted by a rich society couple. She was disinherited when she ran off with her philosophy professor. She married an ancient Japanese 
guy, a scholar. She was widowed. She found her birth mother. Her birth mother disinherited her for writing about her. And then she was re-inherited. And then she was living quite a nice life in New York when she just died on the toilet seat, fully dressed, while the water was running, as if she were about to take a pill. And so this was the first time that I felt like Lindsley was, was okay. She had gone to the other side, and now she was back, and she was encouraging me the way she had encouraged me in life. And if Athena, who visited people in the Odyssey as in the guise of people in their ordinary lives, if Athena were ever to appear to me, it would have been as Lindsley. She had beautiful sapphire shining eyes. And ever since then, I calmed down about having to write this book. Whenever I got blocked or frustrated, I'd clean off that table where Athena had sat and placed the chair, the cane chair, just so, and it helped. At any rate, I did finish the book. Thank you. My mother and father gave me the greatest gifts parents can bestow, a sense of humor and a love of reading. My mother, steady, undemonstrative, intensely private, ah, but my father, David Copperfield described Macorber thus. I've known him come home to supper in a flood of tears, declaring there's nothing left for us but the jail. And by bedtime, calculating the cost of putting bow windows into the house. I reckon Macorber was the first bipolar character in English literature. <laughs> My father was exactly like him, and he knew it which is greatly to his credit. But in his later life, he had considerable mental problems. And I, the term bipolar was never applied to him. But years later, after he died, I thought, bipolar, that's exactly what he was. He always insisted on choosing my clothes. So there was the misery of the walking up and down the he'll grow into it catwalk. <laughs> or peering at my x-rayed feet to see if the shoes were the right fit. He chose my clothes for me even after I left school, even after I started work. Once, uh, greatly daring as a teenager, I went to a local, itself a sin, local menswear shop, and chose myself a loose, floppy, beautiful, light blue sweater. When I got home, he shouted at me and mocked my choice. One Sunday afternoon, a school friend rang and said he had two tickets for that night's dress rehearsal for the gang show. The gang show. That amazing annual fundraising concert for the Scouts. We're going walking along on the crest of a wave and the sun is in the sky. John's got tickets for the dress rehearsal tonight. They're like hen's teeth, even for the dress rehearsal. Can I go? I could go. I can go. I went back into the room, and my father sat there stony-faced, saying, I thought we had agreed that on Sunday nights you should not go out because you have school the next day. But that's why I asked. In the end, I was allowed to go, but it took away a lot of the pleasure. He was always late. This arose because he could not get out of bed first thing in the morning. 
For a while, when he was younger, things got so desperate, he would set the alarm clock, put it into a hat box, put the hat box on top of a wardrobe. <laughs> he would go off in the morning, he would leave out of bed, wrench the alarm clock from the, top, from the hat box, turn it off. He was up. But he had been known to leap out of bed, get the alarm clock, turn it off, leap back into bed, and fall instantly back to sleep. We lived at 44 Marsworth Avenue, Pinner, Middlesex, a suburb of London, a commuting life. We went everywhere by bus or train locally, sorry, locally by bus, otherwise by train from Pinner Station on the Metropolitan Line to Baker Street, and after that, everywhere by tube. I knew London the same way as a mole knows its lawn. Harrods, Oxford Circus. On um, Saturday mornings, we'd always go as a family up to London. And we walked from Marsworth Avenue to Pinner Station, which was 1.2 miles or a couple of kilometers. And we always set off just a little bit late, partly because my father got up late, but also because as my mother and I sat in the hall waiting, he would rush around the house and tidy up, presumably in case while we were out, we had burglars. <laughs> Saturday morning or not, he would still take his brolly and his briefcase. And because we were running just that bit late, he would stride off towards Pinner Station while my mother and I half walked, half ran beside him. Weekdays, it was a bit different. We used our bikes to get to the station. My mother by then was teaching at a nearby school, so she cycled to school. My father and I cycled to the station. You could leave your bike there in a shed, threepence a day, and when you got back at night, you would ride it home. So typical days went as follows. Day one, my father would emerge from the garage, Bronnie, briefcase, and cycle to the station. A few minutes later, Roger would emerge from the garage, riding his bike to the station. My mother would cycle to school. Day two, my father had left his bike at the station overnight. So he would emerge from the garage on my mother's bike. <laughs> I would cycle to the station, my mother running out from the house, furious because she had to walk and run to school. Day three. Father's bike and, and um, mother's bike at the station. Father emerges riding my bike. <laughs> Roger runs to the station. Mother runs to school. That night my father comes home. All three hall bikes are at the station. Vast debts accumulating. Ninepence a day. Roger 
says, where are the bikes? Oh, I was feeling so tired. I came home by bus. Roger runs to the station furiously, gets to the shed, wrenches out his mother's bike from the pile, wrenches out his own bike from there, and wheeling one on either side, he runs home furiously. Bursts into the house, a sweating martyr. <laughs> Nothing said. But my father never took our bikes again. A crossroads, maybe. Could my father and I go on like that for the rest of our lives? Probably. But two years later, I was on the ship sailing to New Zealand. The best thing I ever did. So the story I want to tell happened when I was 10, when my family moved to Canada. But I can't tell the story without you understanding a little bit about my parents. So my mother was an accountant, uh, a, a woman from a small country called Swaziland. And my father was a freedom fighter. My mother was an accountant. <laughs> like, no laugh? Like, that always gets a laugh. Okay. So, um, and when I say that my father was a freedom fighter, I don't mean like a social justice warrior or a keyboard warrior. We have a lot of those these days. I mean, like, literally, that was his job. Um, you know, if he had to fill in an application, uh, you know, where it says occupation, it he would have written in freedom fighter. And, um, his supervisor would have been Nelson Mandela, which, given that um, you know, he was in jail for most of that time, um, meant that supervision was light. Um, and so it was good to have these two personalities, you know, like basically ruling the house, right? Um, and, and if you can imagine, you know, there are no two more opposite kinds of personalities than freedom fighters and accountants. Um, my mom's default position in life was generally skepticism, right? She was skeptical of any piece of data that you would present her with, and that applied mainly to my sisters and I, uh, and my dad, but she was also deeply skeptical of his um, comrades in the freedom struggle, who are shifty characters, as freedom fighters tend to be. <laughs> as we have discovered in South Africa post-apartheid, but that's another story for another day. Um, and my dad, of course, was sort of deeply ideological, very idealistic. Um, and uh, you know, I remember growing up as a kid, we were always jealous because Africans love Jesus, right? Africans are very Christian, many Africans, not all, but many Africans like love going to church and we were never allowed to go to church because you know, every time we would ask, my dad would say, so what does Karl Marx say? And, and we would be you know, seven years old going, religion is the opiate of the masses. Exactly, so okay, so that, that was how, that's how we grew up. So at some stage, reality had to kick in and uh, the accountant decided that the children needed uh, citizenship. They, they could not be stateless forever. The freedom fighter didn't mind so much, but the kids needed a place. And so my mother made it happen that we uh, apply to Canada. And so Canada gave us asylum at a time when we very much needed it. And so we moved to Canada when I was, um, when I was 10. And um, it was a, a, a new experience, shall I say. 
Um, and so on the second or uh, third day of school, I was very new. I was on the playground. Uh, and uh, my sisters and I had grown up uh, as African kids who profoundly believed in ourselves. We were like the cockiest little kids you could po possibly imagine, right? Because our, our dad is a freedom fighter, like the community that we're in, you know, things are always happening. It's a community of, of, of pioneers in a sense. And so we moved to Canada and I'm on the playground after school and this little boy called me a monkey. And the rest of the kids on the playground joined in and began to make monkey sounds. And it was deeply humiliating. Uh, and so I went home and I tell my mother what had happened. And by this stage, the freedom fighter had a job. So he was at work. And he comes home and you know, I'm sort of crying and I'm telling him the story and my mother's, you know, we're explaining what happened. And my father, true to form, says, so did you hit him? Uh, and, and I said, no, <laughs> you know, and, my, and she says, she's just a child. He said, what kind of, what, you know, what have I been teaching you? You should have hit him, you know. So, okay, so, so, so I didn't hit him. Uh, and so, but my dad is furious. I did not come to this country for this to happen to my child, you know. And so we, he insists that we are gonna go to school the next day and he's gonna confront the situation. And I am like mortified because the one thing you don't want when you're in fifth grade is any more attention to you or your parents uh, and certainly as an immigrant child. But th there was no negotiating with him on this one. So off we go <laughs> to school the next day and we go and we sit in, uh, sit in the principal's office and my father explains you know, what, what happened. And the principal, who was a very nice, nice Canadian man, Canadians are very nice, like New Zealanders, and, uh, and he said, you know, uh, it's, this is Canada, and um, these kinds of things you know, will happen to your daughter. Which was the wrong thing to say to my particular father, right? Uh, and my, you know, not on my, my child. I did not move to this, so you are comfortable that in a school where you are responsible for the learning of children, that this should happen to one of them and you tell me that it's okay? Absolutely not. So he had messed with the wrong Negro, <laughs> essentially. And so, and so my, my father said, so what's gonna happen now is that we will go to the classroom and then you will ensure that an apology happens. That, that's what's gonna happen. And my father's six for five <laughs> and solidly built. And, and so that's, and that's what happened. So, so I'm, <laughs> so I am like mortified. Uh, and we walk down the hall and uh, um, my dad stays outside. And it had, those classroom had those, you know, those um, windows that are skinny, you know, that you can look through, but the rest of the door is solid. So I could see my dad in the hallway. And we stood at the front of the class and, um, the principal walked in and he ha ha whispered a word to the teacher and then the two of us stood at the front of the classroom as I am standing in front of you now. And uh, the principal said, kids, uh, yesterday, uh, the playground, something uh, very bad happened. Uh, Sisonka was insulted. Many of you were there. Uh, and that, and I, I want you all to understand that that's not acceptable and I want you to say sorry. And in unison, this class of fifth graders in 1984 in Canada all said, sorry, Sisonke. And, and then I slunk back to my desk and sat down. And 
And it was an incredibly powerful and important moment um, because what my dad was doing was two things. One, he was demonstrating that um, the response to racism must always involve accountability, right? And related to that, what he was also saying was that um, he was helping me to understand and put racism in its proper place in my life. Um, because if we had followed the principles route uh, of nicely, nicely, nice people always want to do things nicely, right? What I would have had is a private apology to what had been a public humiliation. And he insisted that a public humiliation demands a public apology, right? And so what he was doing in that moment was he was allowing me to take that humiliation and to give it back and put it in the terrain in which it belonged, right? And it is a rare and wonderful gift that a child who grows up in a country where they are the demographic minority is afforded that opportunity to see accountability playing itself out in real life. Yeah, to not own the humiliation. And so since then, it was a crossroads. I got there. <laughs> it was a crossroads because it was one of those moments where you, you realize I have never allowed racism to even begin to penetrate because it's not my shame to own. Thank you. Hello. I have a different microphone because I didn't want to look like a motivational speaker. I apologize. I, I'm vain. I apologize. Um, so I'm normally a singer, and uh, I'm, I think this is the first book event I've been invited to be a part of. So I'm an author now, standing before you at the crossroads <laughs> between being a singer and an author. <clears throat> and they said, um, speak from the heart, don't prepare anything, and be ready to talk about an event in your life where you were at the crossroads. And uh, I don't want to tell on any of the, these other people. They prepared a lot of stuff. <laughs> okay? I'm back there, they're flipping through notebooks. <laughs> and I'm, I'm still thinking, what crossroads do I have to talk about? <laughs> but here I am, ready to tell you from the heart some of my favorite stories about being at the crossroads. The first one that comes to mind <clears throat> isn't a crossroads of my own. It's just witnessing someone else at a crossroads. And that was, I was about 23 years old. I was living in an apartment that cost $80 a month, split four ways. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we had a guy move out of the apartment, so we got a, a new guy to move in. And we became best friends. And um, we would smoke pot and play video games and not wash the dishes or anything. It was disgusting. Um, but my friend was brilliant and, and he, was, he spoke like eight languages, which in southern Illinois, you're lucky to find someone that speaks English. <laughs> so that's where I'm from, by the way. 
Illinois. And uh, so one night, it's about two o'clock in the morning, and there's a knock on the door <clears throat> to our apartment. And we were in the middle of a, a heated Sega hockey match. So I paused the game, I went and answered the door, and there's a, there a woman standing there, about 10 months pregnant, I'm guessing. <laughs> Combat boots on, black eyeliner, very goth looking, and she asked me if my friend is there, my friend Mark. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll go get him. And I went back and Mark's sitting there holding, impatiently holding the game controller. I said, there's a woman at the door, she's very pregnant, and um, she's asking for you. And he's like, He gets up and he says, well, it's nice knowing you. <laughs> and he went to the door and I never saw him again. <laughs> That's a true story. I don't know what happened to Mark. He's, he's gone. I guess another crossroads that's a little bit more personal <laughs> is the decision I made when my youngest son was going to be bar mitzvahed and he was resisting going to Hebrew school. And I'm not Jewish, my wife is Jewish. Our older son had been bar, bar mitzvahed with no problem, he was excited about it. He's like, uh, you know, that kind of kid that just does everything and excels. And my younger son is much more resistant. And so at some point, to get him to go to Hebrew school, I said, you know what? I'll convert. I'll go to Hebrew school with you, and I'm going to convert. And uh, so that's what I did. I went every week, and I sat with the rabbi, and I went through the process of converting to Judaism. And... <clears throat> At some point, it came up that even though I, pr I have the proper packaging, <laughs> it was still going to require <laughs> a ritual. <laughs> so we... Um, so we, so we hired a moil. If you don't know what a moil is, I'm not gonna tell you. <laughs> but I can explain the basis of the ritual is that the rabbi needs to see a little bit of blood from your penis. That's all there is to it. And uh, so the moil is the person that does that, it extracts that that blood. And so I was picturing a surgical suite. <laughs> Instead, it was a broom closet at the synagogue. 
a guy showed up with a black bag. And he said, do you know what this entails? And I said, I think so. And he said, oh, thank God. <laughs> so there were stacked up chairs in the, in the closet. He got a couple down. He sat down in front of me on a chair and told me to take my pants down. And I did. He got out a piece of gauze. And this is the part where I never know how, how to make the gesture <laughs> and be honest about it. But he took me in, took my manhood into his hand. He got out a knife, a sharp object. And he said, he looked up and he said, my sons are big fans. Thank you. I can't, I can't believe I have to follow that. And I was an annoying, like, note-flipping preparer, but it's fine. Um, I've been thinking a lot, like, over the last few weeks about um, the idea of being at a crossroads. And I, I suppose for me, being at a crossroads is really more of a moment of surrender because obviously you come up against something where you have to make a decision and it's kind of you know, about letting go of one pathway and kind of surrendering to the choice you've made. Um, so my moment of surrender actually took place um, on a bus in Auckland a few years ago. I was with my little brother, Rufus. I've got four brothers, um, I'm the eldest. He's like the fourth. So um, yeah, we're, yeah, he's younger than me. We're really close and he's a real hilarious character. Um, and he also has Down syndrome. So I've definitely grown up in kind of very close contact with someone who definitely sort of sees the world in entirely his own way. And I actually think um, in my personal experience, having a sibling with a learning disability actually kind of constantly puts you at a point of crossroads because um, so much of the time it's kind of instinctual to try and impose your own worldview on the other person. And um, you end up the whole time thinking like, am I right in thinking this way? Like, is this something that like Rufus has to learn or is this something that I have to learn? Um, but luckily or unluckily, we don't know for Rufus, he was born into like a very big family whose kind of like general attitude has just been like keep up. Um, and <laughs> and um, yeah, he, you know, definitely the vibe of our family is like, you know, if you want to make a point at the dinner table, it definitely like hangs on your willingness to speak the loudest. And um, and Rufus was not given any special treatment in that regard. And like, I remember um, a while ago, we were at a cafe and Rufus was really annoying everyone. And mum like literally shouted across the table, is there something wrong with you? And, uh, <laughs> and all the other cafe goers just were like, oh. <laughs> but um, as a... As a result, Rufus is like very hard case and he definitely gives it back to us. And he, um, he absolutely loves me writing about him and talking about him. Like I wrote about him a lot in my book and I think people, if they've read it, will probably feel like they know him. But yeah, he spends his whole life now um, being like to me, you know, I am famous now. And I'm like, yeah, I know, I did that. Um, and yeah, like yesterday I was interviewed uh, by Jesse Mulligan for radio and I went back to my room afterwards and um, just was like listening to the podcast of it with Rufus and we got to the end and he was like, what is that it? Because I didn't mention him at all. And so, <laughs> so I'm making up for it now. Um, but yeah, so uh, 
back to the bus, which is kind of where the story starts. Like Rufus has a lot of passions in his life, but his like most enduring passion of all is for Shortland Street. For those of you who don't know, it's like a um, TV soap opera about the staff of an Auckland hospital. Um, it's like absolutely Ruth's favourite drama, and obviously it's New Zealand's favourite drama. Um, it's like an um, absolute emotional roller coaster of like uh, murder, you know, kidnapping, drug scandals, like love triangles. Don't know if you guys watch it, but one very confronting episode of a Harry Warner dick pic. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Rufus is there for like every single night without fail. Um, and so this bus ride was actually a really significant bus ride because we were on our way to none other than the Shortland Street Studios in Auckland. Um, I'd like organised it as like a trip for me and Rufus. Um, we'd like, we're from the South Island, so we'd like flown up the night before and stayed in a hotel and now we were like on the way there in Shortland Street having like read my long email outlining the depth of appreciation for Shortland Street that Rufus has, um, had been like, yeah, cool, come hang out, you know, we can go, you can look around the studios. And so... We were like nearly there and I was like, this is a good time. I'm gonna just, you know, remind Rufus that Shortland Street, like while being obviously an incredible show, um, is not real. You know, it's like, it's, like, it's, like, it's like acting, it's like a school play. And he's like, oh, I know. And I was like, mm, <laughs> I don't know if you do know because I know Rufus really well. And that's like a classic example of like, just how he sees the world differently, you know, like he'll be, he's just like, it's just Shortland Street, you know, it's just there on TV every night. Like that's it, you don't have to think about it like you're trying to do right now, you know? Um, and so that, I guess, brought me to my kind of moment of uh, crossroads or surrender because I was on the bus and I was like, right, I think it's pretty obvious that right now I'm just going to have to let go of my desire to explain and just um, go with it. And um, right at that moment, Rufus like, turns around to me, he's like, well, if I see Lucy, uh, Lucy being a character um, on the show at the time who was not in his good books, and then he was like, and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> Um, I was like, cool, that was really comforting, thank you, let's go. Um, and so then we, um, we arrived and we were like there, um, we went past the Shortland Street sign, like Rufus was like so excited, we met the woman who was going to show us around, um, and at this point he was like so excited that he like couldn't really talk, um, and so she was like talking so slowly and loudly to him, <laughs> which was really funny. And then we went to, um, we went to the set, and she was like, cool, you know, this is the set, and like, Immediately, um, Rufus like comes to a room that he really recognizes, and he's like, "Oh my God! Like this is Boyd's room," um, and then he just like flings open the door, which leads to nothing, and he's like, "Oh, random!" And I was like, "Yeah." <laughs> and then, and so then we were like, "Okay, like you know, we'll go along." Like next time we'll go to the bar, so we get to the IV bar, scene of many great episodes, um, and. It's same kind of thing. So Rufus like picks up a like alcohol bottle, you know, and it's all like plastic. He's like, oh, he's like fake alcohol, random. <laughs> I was like, yeah. And then we were like, okay, like let's go, you know, we'll go meet the characters. And um and so we were like, first up comes of course Lucy. Um, but as it happens, Lucy actually uh, went to my high school, so she kind of like vaguely, well, the character who plays Lucy, they're not real guys. Um, the character plays Lucy, yeah, she went to my high school and so like Rufus kind of, she kind of knows me and she vaguely knows Rufus, so she comes up and she's like, oh, Rufus, like, hi, how are you? Like, big hug. And like, over his shoulder, she, he was, he, he, she was like, oh. he's like, she's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> and then 
And then next up after that comes Nicole. And so at the time of filming, they like film three months in advance. So when Rufus was watching, she wasn't pregnant, but now like here and she's got like a pregnant belly. And he's like, Nicole, like you're pregnant. And she's like, yeah, Ruf, like it's a fake baby. And he just looked at me, he's like, a fake baby, like random. And I was like, yeah. I was like, yeah, that was pretty random. And it, it, like, it does sound funny because obviously it was like a, a special Shortland Street day. Um, but like actually, it's just totally unremarkable for like what it's actually like to hang out with Rufus, you know, because so much of his life is just like going forth into situations that don't really make sense to him. And I mean, I think that's like most of our lives. It definitely feels like my life. Um, and Rufus is just like the absolute best at when it like gets to those kind of moments where you're really up against something new and strange. Um, just kind of surrendering, I guess, and like letting yourself kind of not feel that pressure of trying to make like the right choice. And I think like when I was thinking about this whole day and the Shortland Street and Rufus, I was kind of thinking about like, you know, how much he didn't make sense to us at first. And then actually like as time's gone on, like our whole family has become so much more, like less inclined to try and like explain and understand everything and kind of just let things be as they are and let things be imperfect. Um, but anyway, so we like, we like wrap up at the studios and, um, and we're like, you know, we've like watched the filming and like seen all the actors and like um, Rufus has got like a massive signed poster and, um, and we like say our goodbyes and we're walking down the street like back towards the bus. Um, and then in, like at that moment, like a genuine uh, real life ambulance comes past with like the sirens wailing and Rufus is like, oh, that'll be Dallas. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> Thank you. I want to start by making it very clear that I don't believe in magic. Because I don't believe in magic, I very rarely tell this story. Because if you don't believe in magic, it doesn't make sense. But the longer I'm on this planet, the more it's clear that just because something doesn't make sense, that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Um, so here is the story of how I became a writer. Um, and you can decide or not whether you believe in magic at the end of it. Um, it started when I was 11 years old. I was in my grandfather's study looking at his bookshelf. I was looking at his bookshelf because it was and remains a habit of my life to look at bookshelves whenever I encounter them. But in the case of my grandfather's bookshelf, I was looking at it without either hope or expectation. I had been standing there for years looking at these books and they held no interest for me. Most of the bookshelves in my grandfather's study sort of went from waste to ceiling. But there was another set of bookshelves which went from waste down to the floor. And these I knew were the really unwanted books because my grandfather was a man of a certain, shall we say, girth and immobility. And in order to see those books, you would have to crouch down, which was not a thing I'd ever seen him do. So I knew these were the really unwanted books. Every now and then I'd wander over and they were no more or less unwanted to me than any other books. But on that particular day, I was crouching down, looking at the books, and I saw something that had never been there before. I pulled it out. It was a book several decades old, blue hardback, and on the spine, the words, all dogs go to heaven. Not long before this, I had suffered the first real grief of my life when my family's pet dog, 
a Russian Samoyed called Topsy, had died. And so this title, you'll understand, uh, particularly captivated me. I opened the book immediately and I started to read, and it was indeed a book about dog heaven. I was almost instantly in floods of tears, and when my mother came in to say it was time to go home, I knew I couldn't part with this book, so I went to my grandfather and I asked if I could borrow his book, a question I'd never asked him before. He, he looked at the book and he said, I've never seen this before. And then he said, well, it's yours if you want it. Took it home, read it, more floods of tears. A few hours or days later, my best friend Asad came over. Asad and I had many things in common. Among them was a great love for novels. Uh, we would swap books when we enjoyed them. And also, he, like me, had recently suffered the first grief of his life, which was the death of his family's pet dog, also a Russian Samoyed called Lolly. He came over and I had this book ready for him and I said, you have to read this book, it's about dog heaven. And he said, and he can never explain to me why he said this, he said, we should write a book. And I said, okay. So we sat down and I still have in Karachi the exercise book in which we wrote and on the first page it says, a dog's life, comma, and after. I was 11 years old, I'm very proud of this comma. Um, <laughs> And it wasn't, you know, our book about dog heaven, and, and I would write a chapter, and then he'd write a chapter, and, and that sort of set me on the path that really brings me to you. Um, I haven't stopped writing ever since. I use the word path so we can pretend this has something to do with crossroads. <laughs> anyway, we wrote the book um, chapter by chapter. A few weeks, or maybe it was months later, I said to her, I said, can I have my novel back, because I want to read it again. And he said, what novel? I said, you know, all dogs go to heaven. He said, you never gave it to me. I said, of course I did, you came over that day. He said, yeah, I, I, I remember, I came over and you said you have to read this book about dog heaven, but then we started to write our own book and you never gave it to me. And it keeps occurring to me that I should ask you for it. Now I knew he wasn't lying. It's not the kind of thing he would lie to me about and also it was instantly obvious that if I had given it to him, he would have gone straight home and started to read it and he would have called me up to talk about it because that's what we did. But if I hadn't given it to him, what happened to that book? Because I never saw it again after that day when we started to write. It appeared, it made me a writer, it disappeared. Years went by, every so often I would remember this book and I would wonder about it. And then one year I realized that the world had changed and we were now living at a time where we had this thing called the internet and you could search for lost things on the internet. And so I went online onto some now defunct website that had old rare books, and I looked up, all dogs go to heaven. And there it was. And there it was, and next to it was a button. And the button said, buy. And I could click on it, and that book would come to me. I did not click on it. 
I exited the page, and I never went back. Because you see, I don't believe in magic, but I believe in stories, and I knew, know a few things about how they work. And I know that if an object mysteriously appears, changes your life, and then just as mysteriously disappears, it's played its role, and there's no purpose in trying to find it again. And that's why all these years later, it remains the truth, and it will remain the truth, that the most influential book of my life is one of which I do not remember a single word. Thank you. Uh, th this morning at 2 a.m., I was sitting with a friend in Denny's getting a double, double cheeseburger and saying, I have no idea what I'm going to talk about tomorrow night. But I thought I'll just I'll figure it out during the day today. But because I was out until 2 a.m., I spent most of the afternoon lying on my bed in a wormhole of watching episodes of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. <laughs> now, if you're not aware of it, at the moment there's a big drama because Dorit got a little puppy from Lisa and then she put the puppy back and then Lisa found out Nobody cares, all right. Um, and then I thought maybe this is going to be the crossroads of my career, because I'll have come all the way from Ireland to Auckland, and my career will just come grinding to, to a halt um, tonight. But I did think there was two moments, there's two moments in my life that really, I think, are going to define my life, and how, how happy I've been or how happy I'm going to be. And one took place on the 20th of January, 2003, at about 9.40 at night, and the second one is going to take place on the 19th of May at about 12 noon, which is this coming Sunday. So I'll tell you the first one, uh, back in 2003, I'd been working for seven years in a bookshop in Dublin. And I loved working in the bookshop, I really loved it. Um, I liked the people I was working with, I liked the books, I liked tidying, I liked all of it. I, liked, I even liked the customers. And I don't really, I'm not wild about people in general, but I liked the customers because they liked books. And, um, but I published my first two books and I was thinking, what am I going to do with my life? I got to the point where I was manager of the shop and I thought, you know, I, I can either continue on this or I can do, you know, I can continue on the writing, which was the most important thing to me. But on this particular night, on the 20th of January, it was payday. So a bunch of us, about 10 of us, went to a pub called The Duke, which is just across the road from the shop. And we were sitting there, we were having drinks. I wasn't at the best place in my life at the time. I'd been knocked down a couple of months earlier, and I was taking some pills for that. I'd had a breakup that wasn't very happy. I was probably, you know, just, you know, I was in a bit of a depressive place. But we were sitting there, all of us, having drinks, and everybody around the table was just saying how much they hated their lives and how much they hated their job and how awful it was, and how blah, 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 you know, and it just went on and on and on. And eventually I got to a point where I thought to myself, like, this is crazy, why am I sitting here listening to this? And I kind of worked my way around the table, and I told each of them why I hated them, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and, I, and I, I didn't even realize I did hate them until I told them. And I would just go around and like pick on any little thing that um, came into my mind. But anyway, then I took the keys out of my pocket, and I dramatically slammed them on the table, and I said, you'll never see me again. And I, I walked out of the pub. And I got home and I emailed my area manager, and I said, you'll never see me again. 
And uh, I quit, and I never, from that day afterwards, I literally never walked back into the shop. I, I went and moved down to, to Wexford, where I continued writing. And about two years later, that shop closed down. And I remember thinking at the time, and everybody was made redundant, and there wasn't really a lot of jobs in Ireland at the time because of the crash. And I remember thinking, if, I had, if that night hadn't come, and if I hadn't gone around, if I hadn't just been in, in such a state, I would have still been working there, I would have lost my job, and I don't know where I would have been. And by that stage, I had just about to, just about to publish Boy in the Striped Pajamas, and everything was looking quite good. So that was a real, that was a crossroads moment, that was a difficult one, because nobody talked to me again, um, <laughs> firstly. Um, but then the second crossroads moment, as I say, is going to happen on Sunday at around 12 noon. Because on Sunday at 12 noon, and I really do think, you know, I'm 48 years old, I know that's impossible to believe, but I, I really do think it's going to be the second most important moment of my life. Because at 12 noon, I'm going to arrive back in Dublin. And two weeks before uh, leaving um, Ireland to come, I went to Australia and then came to New Zealand. And two weeks before leaving, I had a, the worst moment of my life, really, because I got divorced. And um, my ex and I had been together for 11 years, and then the last two and a half years, you know, broken up. He had come down one, one Sunday morning out of the blue, and if I ever write an autobiography, it's going to be called, um, do you have a moment? Because he came down the stairs and literally said, do you have a moment? And I should have said, no, I don't, I'm really busy. Really busy today, my friend. Um, and uh, yeah, so out of the blue, after 11 years, I was told that, you know, I was, not the most wonderful person to live with, and he wanted all of this to end. And it was obviously, I'm sure many of you have been through that kind of experience in life, and it was traumatic and horrible, and the last two and a half years have just been just really, really terrible for me, to be honest, in general, and just sinking into depression and ending up in hospital at one point, and you know you get to that place in your life where people might look at you from the outside and say, you know, you've got, you've got a lot of so many good things, and it's you've got a great life, you've got everything you ever wanted to have. Um, and inside, you're just, you're just dying, you're just feeling so alone, and you're feeling like a failure. And, you know, I think, you know, we talk so much, especially people like me, you know, writers and so on, when you go on the radio, we talk so much about our successes. We talk up so much about how great we are. And actually, what we never do is talk about our failures, and how after 11 years or something, that um, you can be right back where you started, and feeling lonely and isolated and hurt, and not knowing whether you're going to be alone for the rest of your life. And I think we should talk about failure um, a little bit more in that way. But when I get back on Sunday, what I feel is, after two and a half years of just feeling miserable and feeling sorry for myself all the time, it's time to kind of just change that completely. It's time to go back and just re-enter a world that was kind of taken away from me um, three years unexpectedly. And the last two weeks, two and a half weeks here in New Zealand and Australia. I've been traveling with my, my niece and, and her boyfriend and seeing just happiness and optimism for the future that exudes from these young people makes me think it's time to just get over it. And there's two quotes that I'm gonna leave you with on it. One is from Paul Simon, um, which I think says it all for me, and this is, I have my books and my poetry to protect me. I'm shielded in my armor hiding in my room, safe within my womb. I touch no one and no one touches me. I am a rock, I'm an island. And finally, the, the, the real quote when I think back now over the last 14 years of my life is from the, the great source of Dr. Seuss. 
And Dr. Seuss says, don't cry because it's over. Smile because it happened. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2019 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.